think part of your job as a salesperson is to highlight those costs of inaction, to highlight that it actually isn't a minor injury, it is a major one. You know, a cousin of mine, for example, who every time he wrote an email, writes sort of best Charles or regards Charles at the bottom. And I was always like, why don't you put that in your email signature, right? It'll save you a lot of time. And he would say, well, what do you mean? It only takes me a couple seconds. It's a minor injury, not a major one. I don't know how to use email signatures. It'll take some time. You know, it's not worth doing. And so I would try to convince him and try to tell him how easy it was. And again, coming from my perspective, pushing him. And instead, what I eventually did is I said, huh, okay, well, how many emails do you write a day? And he said, I don't know, 50 emails. And how many do you write a week? And he said, I don't know, 400, 500 emails. And I said, okay, well, how much time every week do you spend writing the signature at the bottom? And he thought about it for a minute. And then he opens up sort of a you know Google search bar and types in how to automate an email signature because each one of those things was costless. Each one of them was a minor injury, not worth the work to fix. But put together, they're actually quite costly. And so I think part of your job as a salesperson is to make someone realize that actually that status quo isn't as safe or as costless as they might think. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Jonah Berger. Jonah's a professor at Wharton School of Business and author of a new book titled The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. He has a great passage in his book, uh, and I'll quote it here. He said, behavioral scientist Kurt Lewin once noted, if you want to truly understand something, try to change it. But the reverse is also true. To truly change something, you need to understand it. And sales is all about change. I mean, people are doing things a certain way. They know they probably need to change. But making the decision to change is hard. And it becomes measurably harder to help them make the decision to change if they don't feel that you understand them. And that's one of the key topics we'll talk about in this episode, how to enable conversations by finding common ground in shared experiences. And we also spend a lot of time talking about how people have a built-in resistance to being persuaded, right? One of the key skills, supposedly, for salespeople, persuasion. So when I call this a persuasion resistance, Jonah Berger talks about it as reactance. And we'll talk about the steps you can take to mitigate this persuasion resistance and engage people in conversation. All this and much, much more. But before we get to Jonah Berger, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you for that. All right, let's jump into it. Jonah Berger, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, so where are you joining us from? Uh, today I'm in North Carolina. North Carolina, and where? Uh, right outside of Durham. Durham? Yes. Yeah, I spoke at Durham last year at a, at a conference. Oh, fantastic. I hadn't been to Durham I had not, I had not been to Durham. I was telling people since uh, my oldest brother had did his uh, Duke interview, trying to get into Duke as an undergrad back in 1966. Uh, <laughs> a little has changed since then. Hopefully, yeah, a lot, a lot had changed though. <laughs> the theater where I spoke was this classic old theater in town auditorium, and uh, yeah, it was really it was a cool conference. So, oh, wonderful. All right, well, we're, we're going to talk about changing people's minds. Yes. Yeah, subject of a book that you've written, obviously a relevant title for sales. And uh, your book, new book called The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. I really wanted to just start with a quote from near the end of the book, which I, I thought was sort of summed things up really well. 
And you'd written that uh, behavioral, quote, behavioral scientist Kurt Lewin once noted, if you truly want to understand something, try to change it. But the reverse is also true. To truly change something, you need to understand it. And this, that I think is, is probably the more key point, even than the Lewin's point, I think that you know, so often in sales these days is there's a lack of real understanding of the person you're selling to. And as a result, you don't build the connection, the trust, and things you need to do to be able to influence the change that they're about to make. Yeah, you know, uh, everyone has something that they want to change. Uh, you know, salespeople want to change the client or the customer's mind. Employees want to change their boss's mind. Folks in marketing want to change consumer behavior. Uh, often, change though is really hard. We, you know, we push. We uh, send one more PowerPoint deck. We make one more presentation. We think if we just give people more facts and and reasons, they'll come around. Uh, but often, it it doesn't work. Uh, and so, I think the key idea of the book, very similar to as as what you noticed, is there's actually a better way. Uh, it's not about pushing harder. Uh, it's not about adding more facts or more reasons or providing more information. It's really about figuring out well, what are the barriers that are preventing change? What are those obstacles, uh, and and how do we mitigate them? There's a you know an analogy I talk a little bit about that I think is is uh, helpful. If you think about a car uh, parked on an incline, for example, you get in the car, you want it to go, you stick your key in the ignition. Uh, if we put our foot on the gas and it doesn't go, sometimes we think, well, we just need more gas. But just as often, sometimes we need to depress the parking brake. And so what the book is really all about is how do we find these often hidden parking brakes, these obstacles, these things that are preventing uh, things from happening? Uh, how do we figure out what is preventing someone from buying my product or service? And rather than trying to just give them one more phone call, remove that barrier and, and use that to change their mind. Yeah, and that's very relevant these days because a huge uh, part of sales these days is all about content, right? So <clears throat> marketing, obviously, as well. Marketing produces a lot of the content, but but there are whole market segments, you know, some people call it sales enablement, though I think that's too narrow of a definition, but it's all about how to deliver the right content at the right time. And for me, it seems like, well, okay, well, that really ignores the fundamental part of it, which is that sales is fundamentally a human business, to your point about what are the barriers. And that's to be dealt with on a human-to-human basis, not on, hey, let's here's another brochure. Yeah. I mean, I think we have this notion that if, if we just push people harder, they'll move. Um, and it's clear why we think that's true, right? So, um, you know, if we're trying to move something in the physical, I think pushing works. If I want to move a chair, I push it, it'll go. But when we push people, they don't just go like chairs. They often they often push back. Um, and I think it's clear why we don't want to take uh, the time to understand them. I was talking to someone about the book and they were saying, oh, you know, I used to be in sales. And what they always said is 100 phone calls a day and, you know, throw something at the wall and eventually something will stick. And Sure, that might work once in once in a while, but um, the more you're trying to change someone's mind about something that's expensive, um, you know, time-consuming, risky, different from what they're doing, um, the more throwing stuff at the wall and hoping it sticks it isn't going to work. We've got to understand them and what the barriers are that are preventing them. You know, you go to the doctor's office, the doctor doesn't just say, "Okay, well, um, you know, here's a band aid." They say, well, hold on, let me figure out what your problem is in the first place. Let me figure out why you're here, what the issues are, and then I'll figure out how I can solve it. Um, and I think the same is true in, in marketing. I was working a couple of years ago with a, a client, um, actually a sales project with a client in, in the B2B space that had a software to help people find machine parts. They were saying, oh, you know, sales are really tough. They're not working. And one thing we talked about is, well, let's put that customer journey together and figure out what the barriers are. 
Obviously, one is awareness. If they don't realize you exist, they can't buy from you. But another is, well, they realize you exist, but they don't think it'll work. They think it'll work, but they think it's too expensive. They don't think it's too expensive, but they don't think they have the problem. They think they have the problem, but they don't think it can integrate with their service existing package. And so part of it's really thinking about what are those things that are stopping someone, figuring out which things are stopping the particular person that you're trying to convince, and then figuring out, well, how do I remove those barriers or those obstacles? Yeah, well, I think you hit on a key point, which is that one of the unfortunate side effects of, of the way we've been implementing these sort of first or second generations of sales automation tools are to do more, as you talk about 100 calls and so on and so forth, but basically trying to turn what I call sales into a game of chance. Yeah. And sure, yeah, a game of chance, you have certain positive, certain number of positive outcomes if you just oh, yeah. do enough stuff, right? But the problem we're reaching in sales these days, in B2B sales, is that many companies have reached this inflection point where they're doing more and more and more and more and the results aren't getting better. And so unless you're selling into an infinite size market, eventually those tactics run short. So this idea of that I have been pushing through my books and so on, and, and it's funny reading your book is you know, I look at some things very similarly as Oh great. Is is um yeah, it's it ultimately boils down to the person. You gotta you gotta have this human to human connection. You're trying to change minds, you're not gonna be doing that by sending a, a piece of literature. It's going to happen on a human level. Yeah, you know, I I obviously talk to a lot of folks in the business world for this book. So, great leaders and effective salespeople, but I also talk to some un, unusual folks. So, uh, you know, substance abuse counselors and right. uh, hostage negotiators. And one of the things that one of the hostage negotiators said is, he said, you know, novice negotiators always start with the outcome they want to achieve. Um, you know, come out with your hands up, do this or else. Right? They they start with the outcome. What negotiators learn as they've done it for a while is they start with the person. They don't start with what they're trying to achieve. They start with who they're trying to convince, who they're trying to change. And by figuring out more about that person, by asking the right questions, by understanding where that person is and what they're doing and why they're there, they figure out the best way to get that person to, to an outcome they eventually want, want to go to. And so I think you're exactly right. We have to start with the people and we have to start with the behavioral science, understanding why change does and doesn't happen and use that to put together techniques and approaches that are going to be more effective. Well, so let's start with the you start the book with a whole example about a an FBI hostage negotiator, but it, it raised an interesting thought because you know one of the things I think that that you think about from a construct from a sales standpoint is that if I can, you know, if I'm too late reaching out to the the customer in sort of their buying journey, or let's say they they came to me as an inbound lead and they've already done their research and so on, is they have certain preconceptions of mind about what it is they think they want to achieve or how they might be able to achieve it. But I, you know, my experience in sales was that I typically found people before they had made up their minds. And my goal is always, well, how do I help them make their mind up? Yes. And I think that's, you know, so I thought like in the case of hostage negotiators, that actually what was really doing is the, the guy that he gave the example of holding somebody in a house is he didn't really know what he wanted. Right, so yeah. it wasn't like he was changing his mind. I thought what he was doing was just really influencing him to help him make up his mind. And I find, do you find those two separate things? I do certainly. And you know, one word that, as you were talking, I couldn't help but think about is kind of upstream. Uh, you know, I teach at the Wharton School. I teach our in, uh, incoming MBAs the introduction to marketing course. And in addition to sort of the basics of marketing, so the five C's and uh, segmenting, target mm -hmm. positioning, four P's, all that sort of stuff. One thing I talk a lot about is thinking about the customer journey and how can we move upstream in that customer journey. A lot of companies are, are doing that in this day and age of figuring out, well, just like you're saying, you know, 
well, there's a customer journey. At some point, someone's going to make a decision. How can we reach that person way before they've made that decision um, and shape how they see the space even? I was recently working with a different client where they're talking about, you know, the problem is when companies put out requests for uh, proposals and they send one to us, we win. But many companies don't even think about us when they're sending out those requests. And so right. we don't, we, we win zero of the bids we're not, in, we're not invited to. And one thing we talked a lot about is, okay, well, the shots how do take. you get them to think about you before they get to, to that point? Yeah. And so, um, you know, that's a lot about what I talk about in the uncertainty chapter, for example, is lowering the barrier to trial, giving out samples or other sorts of things earlier that allow people to experience the offering. Mm-hmm. Um, one person said it very nicely. They say, you know, the book is not really about selling. It's about getting people to buy in. It's about getting them to persuade themselves. And, and I think that's exactly right. Understanding them and using where they are to show them, hey, the best place that to get where they want to get is actually through you. Yeah. And I think that if you look at uh, sort of the buyer's journey and, and Gartner put out some research on this a couple of years ago about buyer enablement, and they sort of describe not a not a process the buyers have because buyers basically are clueless about what the process is because typically when they're procuring you know SaaS software they don't do that but once every five years so they don't really have a defined process but they do know yeah. they do know there are certain jobs they have to get done in order to reach a decision and this this aligns their research really aligns with. Um, Stuff that I don't know if you're familiar with Paul Nutt from Ohio State University. I think he's emeriti there, but now, but had written about decision making as decisions take place in sort of two stages. And the first stage is defining how we're going to solve this problem. Yeah. And the second stage is who we're going to solve the problem with. Yep. And too often in sales these days, to your point about push, 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 the reason we're pushing is because we're doing that last thing. We're trying to influence who they buy from. But what we really want to do is influence how they're going to get the, the problem solved, right? Yes, and so if we get too late in the game, to your point, all, the only option available to us is to push. Yes, yeah, and, and I think uh, I'll tell a story, one of the negotiating stories, because I think it's sort of relevant here. But um, it's a, a little bit of a sad situation. It's one obviously we hope we're, we're never in. But uh, this negotiator was trying to get a guy who was thinking about committing suicide to, to change his mind, and um, you know the guy had lost his job. Um, he wanted to provide for his family, didn't think he could do it, um, but he had an insurance policy, and he was saying, "Look, if I kill myself, you know the." Um, the insurance policy will pay out. It'll take care of uh, my family. Um, and so the challenge there is usually a negotiator would come and say, well, hey, by the way, just so you know, you kill yourself, that policy is not going to pay out. So I'm, I'm done. And the problem there is, you know, you take someone that's dealing with the emotions they're dealing with and you tell them that, and um, it's not clear what, what they're going to do. And so mm-hmm. instead this guy comes and he says, you know, hey, how are you doing? What do you need? And he starts having a conversation. Um, like, oh, you know, uh, uh, well, you know why, are, why are you here today? Why are you thinking about killing yourself? Oh, you know, I lost my job, blah, 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 blah. Oh, interesting. Well, you know, you sound like you care a lot about your family. Tell me about them. And he talks about his two kids. He says, oh, tell me about your kids. Oh, you know, they're great kids. I want to raise them to be great young men, you know, um, respect women, be good people in the world. And they start having this conversation. And after a while, eventually the negotiator says, oh, well, you know, if you kill yourself today, your kids are going to lose their best friend. And what he's done really cleverly is he said, hey, I want you not to kill yourself. And that's the good thing for everybody. But I've helped you get there by yourself. Right. I've helped by understanding what you need and what you care about to help you get there. And now, us in sales, we're not dealing with exactly that. Hopefully, we never have to deal with a situation like that. <laughs> no, but in, in some <laughs> sense, we're dealing with a very analogous situation, sure. right? Is the earlier we come in, the more we can help someone see, hey, you know, the best way to get where you want to go is by doing something that I, I well, actually, I wanted you in the, in the first place. There's another story, completely different domain, but you know, a boss wants to get his employees to stay after work. People suggest their ideas, and eventually, somebody says, oh, we need to work harder. And so, he picks up what that person said and uses that to get where 
where he wanted to go in the first place. And so, and again, it's not about saying what you want. It's about using what that other person needs to help them see that you're actually the best solution. Yeah. And, and so the, the idea that we talk about oftentimes in sales, or some of us do, is this idea of co-creation, right? So this yes. this yes, the customer, some people call it flipping the script and and so on, or the customer's, you know, buying into their idea, but co-creation is the same idea. Is that yeah, you're trying to help the customer make the decision about what how they should solve their problem. And yeah. and yeah, I mean a, a simple example is is uh, uh Dan Rome wrote this book called Draw to Win, which is a great book to read and it's all about you know using illustrations to persuade and convince people, but he gives this great example of you know if you're standing in front of the room and you're whiteboarding out a potential solution somebody you know, do the first quarter, but then stop and hand the Sharpie to, or not the Sharpie, but the dry erase marker to to the customer and say, can you finish this for me? And then suddenly they take over and they start drawing what they need and you get this co-creation going on, which is, to your point, is is right on. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the key aspects of the book, you know, it's behind the, the title of the book, which I think is a great mindset to have, is, is you talk about yeah, you know, this is not a problem of physics, you know, with inertia where we're push, push, push to push something, but it's really it's a matter of chemistry in terms of having a catalyst that catalyzes the connection, the solution, whatever. Um, and so why don't you explain what that meant? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, your listeners are familiar with chemistry, probably know what catalysts are. Most of us think it's catalyst is just the person who creates change, but they actually create change in a, in a particular way. So uh, change in the chemical world is just as complicated, if not more complicated than, than the social world, right? It often takes uh, thousands, if not millions of years for plant matter to change into oil mm-hmm. or um, you know carbon to be pressured into diamonds. Uh, and so chemists often add temperature and pressure to make reactions happen faster. Um, but there's a set of substances, a special set of substances, um, that uh, make change faster and easier, not by adding temperature or pressure, but by taking a, a slightly different approach. These uh, substances do everything from clean the grime in your contact lenses to the uh, grime in the engine of your car. Uh, they've won multiple Nobel Prizes, uh, and they're called catalysts. And, and what they do is they don't increase the temperature, increase the pressure, push harder. They actually lower the amount of energy required. And they do that by figuring out an alternate path to change, not by pushing harder, not by pressuring more, but by really saying, okay, well, we can do this a different way if we lower the barriers. And so that's what the book is is all about. I talk about five key, often hidden barriers, uh, reactants, endowment, uh, distance, distance, uncertainty, and corroborating evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, put them together. Uh, they spell the word reduce, which is exactly what great catalysts do. They don't push harder. They don't add more pressure. They really figure out what those barriers are, and, and they reduce them. And so each chapter is an understanding of what one of those barriers is, talks about the behavioral science behind reactants, for example, uh, and then talks about how to mitigate it. Yeah, let's dive into reactants, because I think that that one, I think of all the sections perhaps salespeople would most easily identify with, um, is, is it really, when you're talking about push, 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 is that you know, the reaction you're getting from people is just, hey, you're, you're limiting my my freedom, my autonomy, my freedom of choice, and I'm just human nature, I'm going to push back. Yeah. So, so let's take a step back for a second and just sort of understand why reactance happens before we talk about the solution. So uh, people like to feel, us, anyone, likes to feel like they're in control. We like to feel that our choices, our decisions, our actions are driven by mm-hmm. us. Why did I pick a product? Why did I use a service? Why did I make a decision? Because I want it to. I am in the driver's seat. But unfortunately, when we try to influence them, when we try to get them to do something, um, now they're not sure whether they chose it, right? Or whether we chose it for them. Even think about this in our personal lives, right? Sometimes in your 
personal life, you know, your spouse, your friend will suggest something you wanted to do already, but because they suggested it, now you don't want to do it anymore. You no, want to feel like that you're... never happens. <laughs> you want to actually, feel like... you've, got a, you've got a young child. You're going to start experiencing this in spades. Coming oh, up, yes. So. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, uh, and so definitely talk about, you know, some of, of this in terms of parenting in the book. Um, you know, we have an anti-persuasion radar, essentially. Uh, it's almost like an anti-missile defense system or a spidey sense that goes off when we think someone's trying to convince us, right? So we get a sales call, we get an email, we hang up the phone, we delete the email, we avoid or ignore it, or even worse, we listen. But rather than actually sitting there listening, actually what we're doing is we're counter-arguing. We're thinking about all the reasons why what someone else suggested is wrong. Yeah, sure, you say this product or service is great, but it's yours, so you would say it. Sure, you say it'll work, but how do I know that it'll actually work? It's probably too expensive. It's probably difficult to do X, Y, and Z with. And so almost like a high school debate team, they're poking holes in your argument, which makes them less likely to listen. And so the key insight from that chapter is really, well, how do we get people to persuade themselves? Um, so just to give one example, uh, you know, let's take that meeting. You're making a presentation. Uh, the client's sitting there. They're poking holes in everything you're suggesting. Um, we need to give them a different job, right? Uh, rather than giving them one option, often we give people one option. They poke holes in that option. What really great salespeople or consultants or others do is they give people a couple options. They give them multiple. They give them what I call providing a menu. A menu like two, right. three, maybe even four. Not too many, but a couple options. Because what that does is that subtly shifts the role of the audience. Rather than sitting there going, well, I don't like this option. I don't like it. Here's all the reasons why. They're now thinking, well, which of these things do I like better? Which means they're much more likely to pick one of them uh, at, at the end uh, of the day. Right? You've shifted their job. And so now they're much more likely to go along. Think about it in your personal life. right? If your spouse says, hey, what do you want to do this weekend? You say, oh, let's go to the movies. They say, no, we just did that. Or no, it's too nice outside. If you say, hey, you want to go to the movies or you want to go get sushi? They go, hmm, which of those do I prefer? And because of that, they're much more likely uh, to go along. And so in a sense, it's guided choices. You're giving people choice. You're allowing them to participate and have a role in that process. But you're choosing the choice set. You're not giving them 50 options or 1,000 options because that's overwhelming. Even though a small set of options, you're even setting up the options to encourage them to go in a particular direction, but you're setting sure. it up in a way that they want to participate and they feel like they have a role, so they're more likely to go along because they chose it. Yeah. Well, and we, that's what I was referring to earlier with the different, you know, differentiation between the, the choice and the decision is that, yeah, people want options. And one thing's not found out in his research is that on a corporate basis is that one of the real problems with decision making is they formulated too few options to choose from. And so, yep. so this whole debate about what's the optimal number of options, right? There are books that talk about three and two and four or whatever. But I agree with you. It's you want to have you want to have multiple options, and if you're doing a good job as a salesperson, those options all include you. Yeah, and even by the way, though, notice if sometimes it's not your option. If if you present options and all of them are yours, the client's going to go. Of course, you'd suggest all your options. If if you include some options from someone else, they go, "Huh? Well, maybe you're actually taking my best interest at heart, and so I'm more likely to trust you." Progressive had a great campaign a few years ago where they sure. gave people quotes, price, even right. from the competition, which made you go, "Wow! If they're willing to show me when the competition's cheaper, I'm really going to trust these guys, and so that's going to be the place I'm going to go first. Yeah, I th but I think what you, the more likely situation you get in sales is that, you know, you're just not a good fit, right? This is where you're going to bring on the competition, and then you say, "Here's a better option for you. We're we're not a fit for this, right?" Yeah. And then, yes, you earn a lot of trust, and sometimes that business comes back to you later, and it certainly has for oh, me yeah. in instances. Yeah, agree. I mean, sometimes you're not the best fit. You have to be willing to admit you're not the best fit because that is a trust thing. Yes. Yeah. So. Um, the other thing you talked about is uh, 
ask, don't tell. And the reason that's stuck in my mind is I've, <laughs> for about 10 years, I've been giving workshops where I have, that's one of the titles of one of the chapters in the workshop is ask, don't tell. But uh, tell us what you meant by that. Yeah, very simple ideas, as we talked about with, with reactants. You know, when you tell people what to do, they often push back. They say, no, I, I don't want to do that. Um, and so sometimes asking questions is a much more effective way to get them to commit to the conclusion, right? Because when they came up with it, they're much more likely to, to stick to it. You're sure if it's your idea, they're going to counter-argue. But if it's their idea, it's going to be hard for them not to go, well, okay, I, I suggested it. And so sometimes it's really about saying, you know, take a sales context. Okay, what are the key problems? You know, why are you searching for this particular product? What are the key problems that you're wrestling with? What are you looking for uh, in a solution? And so by asking, you really get them to figure out, well, what's the best fit for them? And then if you're a good match, you end up getting them to, to buy into what you're saying. It relates actually a lot to another technique, which I call highlighting a, a gap, which is really, again, not trying to convince someone, but point out a gap between their attitudes and, and their actions, right? So um, let's say someone's using another provider. Um, it's not really working out for them, but they're, you know, mm -hmm. they don't want to switch. They've got the status quo bias. They're stuck with what they're doing. They don't want to change. You could say something like, well, oh, you know, I noticed you're still using this, this thing. Would you recommend this to your peers in another company? You know, knowing what you know now, would you recommend someone start working with this other firm? And they might say, well, no, of course not. Like there are delays or there are problems or this and that. And you say, okay, well then why are you still using that, right? Again, now you're not saying use us. You're not saying that company's bad, but you're pointing out a gap. If what they're doing is not what they would recommend for someone else, and you highlight that for them, that's going to encourage them to resolve that, that cognitive dissonance. There's a great story in the book. Uh, it's a, and in that's Thailand. a great example, by the way, for sales. It's for sellers to interject here is that when you think about it, is yeah, you're you're saying, hey, how satisfied are you with what you're using today? Would you recommend it? And if you was your point, if you wouldn't recommend it, why are you still using it? Yeah, there's a, there's this great anti-smoking campaign from Thailand where they you know want people to get uh, quit smoking. They aren't yeah, calling the a quit kids, line. Right. Yeah, so you know rather than tell people not to smoke, they have some kids walk around town. Uh, the kids ask people for a light. The smokers, of course, the smokers say no, uh, and the kids say why. And the smokers list all the reasons why the kids shouldn't smoke. You get emphysema. Don't you want to go run and play? All these other things. And the end of that conversation, the kids go, "Okay, well then, why are you still smoking?" Right? They hand this little sheet of paper saying, "You know, hey, you're worried about me, but." not about yourself, call this number to quit. Again, not pushing them, not saying, hey, that company's terrible, don't work with them. Uh, hey, my product is better, but saying, well, if you wouldn't recommend this to someone, if you wouldn't tell me to smoke, why are you doing it yourself? Put that mm -hmm. seed in someone's head, let that seed grow, and then only later come back to harvest, harvest the plant. Sometimes pushing them isn't going to work, so highlighting that gap encourages them to resolve the dissonance. And I think a specific example for the ask, don't tell, a little more pointed is... <clears throat> That, that I work with companies on and talk about is in a more more pointed solution is like when you hey if you have an opportunity to you know express something you want to talk about your features or benefits is you know hey we can do XYZ da 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 is just turning that into a question. So if you had the opportunity to be able to do XYZ, what would the value be to your company? What would the impact yes. be on you personally? What would the and then get them to put it in the terms of them, yes. right? And then they have to answer it from their context, which is what you want. Yeah. I mean, even think about as you're talking, I was thinking about what waiters or waitresses do, right? They say, what did you enjoy most about dinner tonight? Right? Like encouraging you to recognize the ways in which you've had a good time, mm -hmm. uh, but asking, not telling you, wasn't dinner great? Uh, no, but asking you and sort of allowing you, and as you said, okay, well, if you say you care about these features, it's hard then later not to want to buy a product that has them. And notice what you're doing though. You're not asking any question. 
right? Because there are certain questions that are wrong. There are certain questions that will lead people the wrong way. Mm-hmm. You're using questions and options to guide the journey, but not prescribe the journey. You're not, the, you're not forcing people down a particular direction, but you're encouraging by shaping through questions to help them see that you might actually be the best option. Right. So then you talk about start with understanding, which I thought was a great, a great part of the book. Um, so tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, we talked a little bit about that already, right? When we mm-hmm. talked about the hostage negotiator and sort of starting with with other people, but using questions uh, and using uh, the right sort of language to build that trust, to build that understanding, get a sense of where someone is coming from, and then use that for for influence. So I think we've pretty well covered that already. But the idea ties into the same notion, right? If we push people, they'll push back, uh, and so to avoid that reactance, avoid that anti persuasion radar, start with them and, and start with understanding. Yeah, and I think to add on to that is is more explicitly, is that for people to change, they have to be willing to listen. And I think this is the other part about understanding, is until people feel understood, oftentimes they won't want to listen to what you have to say. And this is a part that sellers want to jump over, right? Is, yeah, they'll say, yeah, I've got empathy. But I mean, what they really need in sales is you know, so more of a cognitive empathy where they understand why people feel the way they do. And you're never going to find that out unless you, you ask and keep asking. Yep. And that level of understanding then gets people to open up in a way that and, – and listen even in a way that they wouldn't before. Yeah. All right. Um, endowment. So the next one. That was, I thought that was interesting as, as well. Uh, you talked about uh, – well, you had an example with angioplasty in the book, which I thought was, was interesting about why people don't change their diets – yeah. When they have that. Yeah. I mean, to me, the idea of endowment is, um, I think the simplest way to explain it is people are attached to the stuff that they're already doing. Anytime we're trying to get someone to change, uh, you know, we're not only asking them to do something new, which we'll talk about maybe in a couple minutes, is uncertain, it's scary, it's risky. We're also asking them to let go uh, of something old. Uh, and people tend to be really attached to the stuff that they're doing uh, already. They tend to like the stuff that they're doing already, even if it's not perfect. Um, you know, they tend to be attached to it. The longer someone's lived in a home, for example, uh, you know, the more they think it's uh, valued, even above and beyond market price, because it's theirs. It's hard to imagine giving it up. Um, you know, we're attached to the products and services we use, even the ideas. Right? It's our idea. Uh, if it came from us, uh, we, we like it more. There's some great research, for example, that shows you know, uh, give someone a show someone a mug ask them how much they'll pay for it. They give you a certain number. Mm-hmm. Uh, give someone else that mug, though. Uh, say it's theirs. They get to take it home with them. Ask them how much they'd be willing to sell it for someone else for. You'd say, well, it's the same mug. It should be the same price, whether you're buying it or selling it. It's worth the same amount. But if it's your mug, if it's something you already have, you often value it two to three times the amount uh, of someone who doesn't have it already because it's yours, right? It's yours. It makes you you value it more. And so part of the challenge there really is, is to highlight the cost uh, of an action. You know, often people think the status quo is, is costless. Sure, I'm already doing this, right? So it's uh, costless to stick with what I'm already doing, but it's really costly uh, to switch. But that's not exactly right. Often that sticking with old things is actually uh, costly. So a great study in the, in the sort of medical domain, they asked people, okay, you know, imagine you had an injury. What would hurt more, a minor injury or a major one? You know, you sprain your ankle, you sprain your knee, you sprain your finger, you break your ankle, you break your knee. And obviously people say, well, a major injury, right? A major injury causes a, a lot more pain. But that's actually not right. Uh, it ends up a minor injury uh, causes mm-hmm. more pain. And the reason why is major injuries get fixed. Right? You break your knee, you break your ankle, you get oh, a I, cast, you do physical That story therapy. resonated with me because I, <laughs> I when I was in college, I had some horrible ankle sprains. And the doctor uh, said, you've been better off breaking it. 
Yeah, right? Because if, if we break it, if it's above that threshold, we do all the work to fix it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it's not that painful, we don't do the work to fix it. And so it ends up over time, that costs us uh, a lot. And that's often true of sort of the existing service provider someone's using, right? It might not be perfect, but they say, oh, is it worth switching? And so I think part of your job as a salesperson is to highlight those costs uh, of inaction, to highlight that it actually isn't a minor injury. It is a major one. There's um, a cousin of mine, for example, who uh, every time he wrote an email, right? sort of best Charles or regards Charles at the bottom. And I was always like, why don't you put that in your email signature, right? It'll save you a lot Mm -hmm. of time. And he would say, well, what do you mean? It only takes me a couple seconds. It's a minor injury, not a major one. I don't know how to use, uh, you know, email signatures. It'll take some time. Um, You know, it's not worth doing. And so I would try to convince him and try to tell him how easy it was. And again, coming from my perspective, pushing him. And instead, what I eventually did is I said, huh, okay, well, how many emails do you write a day? And he said, I don't know, 50 emails. And how many do you write a week? And he said, I don't know, you know, 400, 500 emails. And I said, okay, well, how much time every week do you spend writing the signature at the bottom? And he thought about it for a minute. And then he opens up sort of a, you know, Google search bar and types in uh, how to automate an email signature because each one of those things was costless. Each one of them was a minor injury, not worth the work to fix, but put together, they're actually quite costly. And so I think part of your job as a salesperson is make someone realize that actually that status quo isn't as safe or as costless as they might think. Yes, each time you use it, it's this, or each time something is delayed, or each time it's not perfect doesn't matter that much. It doesn't. But put together as a whole, it's actually quite costly and it's worth doing the work to find something better. Well, especially if you're dealing with a customer that, you know, sort of following the sunk cost fallacy and they think, hey, we've, we haven't really gotten what we wanted out of this investment and this other solution, but they tell us, you know, if we just another $10,000 or another $20,000, it's really going to work and give us what we want this time and go through that sort of pattern of that. And that's, again, in that instance, being able to show them the cost of inaction, big inaction in terms of sticking with what they got, is very real. Yeah, and I also think, though, uh, using the distance to help you, right? So to say, I totally understand you've got that sunk cost, um, you know, that's only a little bit more to stick with them. Um, you know, if I were in your shoes, I would say, well, what point do I cut bait? Right, you know, how much more am I going to put into this before I decide to switch? And get them kind of to figure that out for themselves and commit today. Because they might say, "Yeah, I'll try another ten thousand, but they might want to try another twenty or thirty thousand. And if they agree to that now, then maybe when they get to twenty, they'll say, "Oh, now, now," because each time it's easier. Right, every time it's easier to ignore that minor injury, but put it all together and you make them realize it's a more major one, which makes them more willing to incur the switching costs of change. Yeah, I remember reading. An article, a book by James Surowiecki in The New Yorker where he was talking about the whole sunk cost fallacy thing. And and he was saying that one of the things that's really important in that situation is you need to bring in like a third party, right, to be able to provide perspective on, you know, this whole track they're running down with the sunk cost. Can that be the salesperson to be that third party or does it have to be someone more objective? I think you almost want to encourage the client to become that third party, but by taking distance. Mm-hmm. Right? So saying, yeah, right now, I agree. You should stick with them right now. But if it was, if things don't change, you know, would you want to stick with them forever if they were this way? And say, no, no, you know, in six months, it was exactly the same. I would want to change. Cool. Well, then figure out a way to test that. Right? What's, a, what's an indicator that if it doesn't change in six months, you want to move? Because when we get to six months, if you don't do something like that, you'll say six months. And you'll say another six months. And you'll say another month. It's always easier when you're in that moment not to change. But when you step back from it, you can be that third party. You can say, well, in six months, if it's not better, this often happens in relationships, right? Where people say, oh, this relationship isn't perfect, but you know, I don't know if I can meet someone better, um, so I'm going to stick with it. 
But if you say, okay, well, if it wasn't better in six months, would you want to stick with it? Probably say, of course, I wouldn't want to wait six months. Okay, well then decide today that you're going to do something in six months if it's not better and figure out a way to figure out if it's better. If it's not better, then get out of it. But encouraging them again to come up with the conclusion, commit to it themselves, and almost allow them a way to measure it will help them be that, that third party. Yeah, you have to quantify the impact. I mean, in sales, if, if you're looking at this, this gap, is you have to quantify what the impact of, of inaction is, as you talked about. But it's not just the impact of inaction, but also it's quantify what the upside would be. Yes. If the customer takes, takes, the, takes the, the initiative to say, okay, well, yeah, if we, if we move to a new system, maybe we get another point of market share or something like that. Well, what's that mean to you? What's the dollar value of that? Yes. Yeah. And also, I mean, we'll probably talk about it, but sort of enable them away. If, if the issue is the old thing, right, then it's about pointing out the cost of an action. If the issue is the new thing, and how do I know if that new thing is going to be good, then we've got to do the opposite. Then we've got to reduce uncertainty and make them feel more comfortable doing something new. Yeah. Well, right. Which is dealing with how do you mitigate risk with, with a lot of that. But So one, one issue I wanted to talk about um, in the, uh, the distance chapter, I thought two things that were sort of interesting. One was you talk about the movable middle, which... I thought was interesting. I wanted to express that with, or explore that as well, and then also the idea of switching the field because I think those have have some real relevance. So, explain what you meant by movable middle in your distance part. Yeah, well, so let's step back for a second and first talk about what we mean by by distance. And mm-hmm. so, part of the challenge is whenever we're trying to change minds, we're often asking people to move further away than they're comfortable. And I think it's easiest to talk about this in. Further away from where they are, so a longer distance than where they are. Yeah, so take yeah. a political domain, for example. You know, Think about uh, Democrats and Republicans. Put them in some sense on a field, right? So very conservative on one end, very liberal on the other, and people can place themselves at any point uh, in the field, You know, their beliefs, where, where they are. It turns out there's a range around where people are at the, at the moment. It's called the zone of acceptance. People are willing to consider information in, in that range, right? So um, uh, you, know, you might be on the Democrat side of the field on sort of the 20-yard line. You're not extremely liberal, but you're not, you know, uh, completely moderate, you're willing to consider information five or 10 yards in either direction, right? You're willing to consider mm-hmm. things slightly more liberal and slightly more conservative than you are. But outside of that falls in the region of rejection, right? It falls in a zone that you are unwilling to even consider that, that information. Um, and the problem is that many times when we try to convince people, we fall in that region uh, of rejection. There was a great study that was done uh, at Duke a couple of years ago uh, where they look at politics and they say, hey, could just giving people information about the other side get them to become more moderate? You know, not even trying to convince them, but just give mm-hmm. them information about what Republicans think or, you know, what Democrats think and, and vice versa. And what they found is not only did it not work, but it actually polarized people. Giving Democrats yeah, information about Republicans made them become more liberal and giving Republicans information about Democrats became them more conservative. Why? Because that information was kind of too far away from where they were, were at the moment. It wasn't something that they're even willing to consider and it makes them think that even their own beliefs are more right. And so, Well, and the thing that's critical about that, though, that is that they were giving them the truth, though. They weren't, they weren't, there wasn't a, you know, they were, the, if I understood the book, is the Democrats, you're giving them factual information, not, uh, not propaganda. And, the, and it was the it was the truth it was the truth that yep. dissuaded them, which I thought yeah. was fascinating. Yeah, but but again, right? If it's too far from kind of where you are, you're not even willing to listen. Mm-hmm. Lots of research on the confirmation talk, bias talks about sure. this. You know, or what information we consider, what we look for, but also whether we can even consider that information depends where it is relative to us on, on the field. Um, and so, well, how do we then shrink distance? And so, I, t- I talk about a few ways to do that. You know, one is what I call asking for less. Uh, that I think is is really useful uh, mm-hmm. in, in the 
these types of situations. So um, there was a doctor, for example, that I that I talked to was trying to get someone to uh, stop drinking soda. He's an obese trucker, was drinking three liters of right. Mountain Dew a day. Obviously, a lot of sugar uh, in Mountain Dew. I was just envisioning how often he had to stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're in a truck all day, you got to drink something. Yeah. And our tendency in that situation is to want that person to move a lot right away. Stop drinking soda. Makes a lot of sense to us. Really hard for that person to do, mm-hmm. right? Really hard for them to go from one side of the field completely opposite right right away. And so what she does is she takes a different approach. She starts by asking for less. She says, hey, I know that you like soda. I know that it's easy for you to drink. I know that you love Mountain Dew. I'm not going to ask you to quit. But rather than drinking three liters a day, try cutting it down to two and drinking a liter of water instead. And the guy grumbled. He didn't want to do it. But eventually he did it, right? It was in that zone of acceptance. It was close enough. He did it. When he came back for his next visit, he says, great. Oh, congratulations. You've done two liters. That's fantastic. Now try to cut it down to one. He grumbles again. He doesn't want to do it. Cuts it down to one. And then she comes back and says, okay, now you've got it down to one. Cut it down to zero. And he grumbles, but eventually does it. Guy loses over 30 pounds because she didn't just ask for less. She asked for less and then she asked for more. Mm-hmm. Right? What essentially what she did is she took big change. She chunked it into smaller smaller chunks. Product designers uh, often talk about this as stepping stones, right. building stepping stones. Take a big change, one that's very scary. It's far and distant in a way. Break it down into smaller chunks and make it feel more comfortable. Jump to this version of the product, then the next one, then the next one. If you ask people to do all of it right away, they'll say, no, river's too big, I'm going to get wet, it's scary. But you break it down into smaller chunks, they're, they're more willing to do it. And so the idea there then is, hey, if I'm asking someone to do a lot, don't try to get them to go from one side of the field to the other. Try to get them to start doing a small movement that will move them in the right direction, shift their position in the field, and then ask for a little bit more. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. I mean, in, in my first book, I had a chapter about start each relationship with the smallest engagement possible. I mean, if you're trying to sell into a bigger account, and and I came from the background of working for startups and we're selling large, complex communication systems worth millions of dollars, sometimes the price we were selling was more than our revenues, right? Yeah. So from a risk perspective, the customer is never going to buy a big one from us. So yeah. we found that, hey, if we really want to get in the door, then yeah, we'd start with the small ask. Yes. And also even connecting that to what we talked about earlier with the idea of being upstream, right? Mm-hmm. Not only what is a small ask, but what's the right small ask, right? So a lot of times now, we'll maybe talk about this when we get to distance, but companies use a version of the freemium model, right? Where we give something yes. away for free and we encourage people to upgrade to, to a premium version. And why that works really nicely, not only does it mitigate the risk, lower the barrier to trial, mm-hmm. but once they've gotten in, right? If what you do is you create barriers to switching, now they're going to stay with you, right? And so giving away the right thing earlier, figuring out, well, what's the right thing upstream in that journey? Once they're using us for this, they'll want to use us for other things, right? Maybe we say, okay, okay, we'll give away a certain service or a certain product line or a certain thing for free or almost subsidize the cost. Because once you're using us for that, you'll be much more willing to use some of these other more expensive services. And it's in some sense a way in. Once you're in our ecosystem, you'll stay there. But let's explore that one because there seems to be less usage of the freemium model these days. And there seems to have been a pushback on it or for some reason or companies found that they weren't able to convert enough of their free users and so on. So what are you seeing in that regard? Yeah, so, so I would say two things. Uh, so first of all, I still think freemium is quite useful. Uh, I see many organizations using it. Well, it's still out there, but not not the way it was before or five, ten years ago. 
Uh, that, that may be true, but I mean, yeah. think about, you know, Dropbox built a billion dollar business sure. on it. Uh, LinkedIn, Skype, New York Times, many sort of software as a service models use freemium. Uh, but to me, what's more interesting is not freemium itself, but the principle that freemium is, is built on, right? Because many B2B Reduce companies to trial. I work with say, oh yeah, this idea of freemium is great. Like if I gave away something that was cheap and I could do that, that'd be wonderful. But I was working with a fleet management company, for example, they said, well, we can't really give away cars for free. How would that work? Or, or a hospital system or what is that thing that we're going to give away for free? And so freemium works really well if you're the New York Times where there's no cost to giving away an article or two. Mm-hmm. I think many companies that sell physical goods have a hard time understanding the idea of freemium. But think for a moment about like taking a test drive of a car. Say you walked into a car dealership and said, okay, you know, I'd, I'd like to check out this car. And they said, great, okay, it's $30,000. And then we'll let you sit inside and see whether you like it or not. Well, nobody would buy a new car. Right? If you had mm. to pay all the money up front, of course you wouldn't buy a new car because it's too uncertain. You don't know whether you're going to like the brand. And so what car companies do is they create test drives. Now, let's be careful. Test drives are not freemium. It's not a free version of a product and they try to upgrade you to the premium version of the product. It's just test driving a car. But the principle is the same, right? Because all of what this is is really about switching costs. Anytime there's something new, you have to pay costs, whether it's monetary costs, I have to pay for the product or service, whether it's time costs, I have to figure out how to integrate it with existing systems, whether it's effort costs, I have to learn how to use it. And so all those costs are often upfront, whereas the benefits are later, right? I have to pay you all this money and I have to install the service and do all this work before I actually have to see if it's better. Why would I want to do that, right? All of us say, okay, well, I'll eat the good stuff now. I'll eat the cheeseburger now and I'll exercise later. We want our good stuff now and the cost later. And so that's this cost-benefit timing gap, right? Costs are now, benefits are later. Costs are certain, benefits are uncertain. And so what lowering that barrier to trial nicely does, what freemium, what test drives, with any of these ideas that sort of lower that barrier do is they say, let's push off some of those costs to later and let's bring up some of those benefits to sooner. Not only do they reduce the cost, but they reduce the biggest barrier, which is uncertainty. Now you get a sense of whether you like it or not. And if you like it, you'll be much more likely to buy it. Okay. Now there's a huge counter example out there though these days, which is Tesla. Because they've sold hundreds of thousands of cars, and no one test drives them. Yeah, but the question is not, uh, can we think of a successful counterexample? The question is, would Tesla be even more successful if they did test drives, right? And so the nice thing about uh, being a scientist is you can say, well, let's analyze a whole bunch of cases, look at a bunch of things that use something and a bunch of things that don't, and see whether the ones that use this stuff are, are less successful. And there's a lot of research, uh, you know, even going back to the uh, great work of Everett Rogers, an early sort of researcher in diffusion, on the benefits of lowering the barrier to trial to increasing uptake. And so I certainly think you know not every company that's successful has used a model like freemium uh, or test drives mm-hmm. but most companies that have used those things become more successful as a result i mean, even think about you know you go to the grocery store right that piece of smoked sausage or that uh, little bit of food on aisle oh, three yeah, that they yeah. give you to taste it makes you more likely to buy it right it's not to say that every brand that's successful has used that but it's helped a lot of brands be more successful than they would have been otherwise Okay, so we're running short on time, but I've got one one last point I want okay. to talk about. I, I thought it was fascinating. Is is under your chapter of corroborating, corroborating evidence? Is is this issue of timing? You know, I never haven't seen this before. About uh, in your case, you're talking about spacing invitations more close together than than otherwise, and sort of hitting the the customer up with the message in a shorter period of time, multiple touches. Uh, tell us about that because I, th- I thought that was really interesting. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, I talk about in the idea in the book of when we're trying to change minds, sometimes they're pebbles and sometimes they're boulders. Mm-hmm. Pebble is a little bit of thing. It doesn't take a lot of work to move a pebble. It takes more work to move a boulder. Um, and we often think, well, if we just come back to that uh, you know, prospect with more information, uh, they'll change their, their mind. Uh, but often it can't come from us. Right? Because if it just comes from us, people say, well, of course, you're self-interested. You're not going to change my, my mind. There's an old adage that says, you know, if one person says you have a tail, you laugh. But if five people say you have a tail, uh, you turn around to take a look. If multiple people say the same thing, it adds enough evidence to tip the scales uh, to move that boulder. But as you're saying, it's not just about the number of people. It's about when you hear uh, from those people. Right? Uh, if you hear from one person a day, and one person tomorrow. And sometimes there's enough evidence to move that boulder. But it turns out if you hear from one person a day and another person six months from now, it's almost like the weight that's being put on the scale to move that boulder isn't just, let's say, water, for example. It's like an ice cube. And if you wait too long, that water melts. melts, And there's not enough proof to drive drive action. That water, in some sense, uh, evaporates. We did some research looking at adoption of a new website, for example, where we found, hey, more people that invite you to join this website, you're more likely to join the site. But it's not just about the number of invites you receive. It's about when you receive those insights insights. The mm-hmm. closer they are in time, the more concentrated they are in time, the more you go, hey, lots of people are doing this. The more that water doesn't evaporate, the more it gets you above that threshold to, to drive behavior. And so what that suggests is, hey, you know, if I'm trying to convince someone, I want them to talk to existing clients, but not just any time. I want them to hear from a few existing clients in close succession to push them over the threshold to take, to take action. Sure, if I'm going to invite them to a dinner with clients, great, but I want to follow that up with them hearing from someone else to give them a enough evidence in a coordinated fashion that there's enough pressure on that one side of the scale to move even a boulder uh, in the right direction. And I was just thinking from a practical standpoint, if you were trying to you know, put together a, a short video that had five customers giving you testimonials, you'd probably better off making five short videos that you sent in a sort of relatively close succession. Yes. Yeah. And I also think even though those testimonials, right, we want to encourage people to get those testimonials themselves. Because if, if you, the salesperson, say, hey, call John, here's his phone number, right? Or, you know, here's a testimony from John. I'm like, well, you pick John because John is, is great, right? But if you, if you say, okay, here's a bunch of people, call whoever you want. Now, suddenly I'm going, well, hey, this guy must really think their customers like them because they're willing to let me talk to anybody. And so I'm much more likely to believe that information I get rather than sort of a pre-recorded testimonial, which might have edited all the parts where they well, weren't as happy on something. Like sure. That. All right. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time. Um, <laughs> no problem. But it's, been, it's been, we still have parts of the book we didn't cover, but uh, so tell people, you know, where they can find out more about the book and connect with you. Sure. So the book is available wherever books are sold. Uh, it's already a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, which is great, but it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, wherever you might uh, get your books. Uh, you can also find out about me uh, at jonaberger.com. That's just J-O-N-A-H-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. There's a lot of free resources there, things like how to change your boss's mind, uh, how to change a client's mind, Lovely. a bunch of stuff if you're not so sure about the book yet, but you want to dip your toe in and find out more, some resources you can download. And well, hey, this was, this was your, your trial here, this, this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we've reduced that barrier to buying the book. Hopefully well, so. Purchase the book. It's a good book. I recommend it. Jonah, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. Ever so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank my guest, Jonah Berger, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you could also leave us a rating or review, let us know how we're doing. We'd certainly appreciate that. You can do that all on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.